Welcome to The Time of Our Life, a special series from Valley Public Radio. I'm David Aus. In this series, award-winning journalist and author Mark Arax offers a special perspective on our times, viewed through the lens of writer William Soroyan. Each week, a Valley writer will read a short story by Soroyan, and we'll discuss the relevance of Soroyan's work on our time. First, Mark Arax shares a bit of the preface to Soroyan's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, The Time of Your Life. In the time of your life live, so that in that wondrous time you shall not add to the misery and sorrow of the world, but shall smile to the infinite delight and mystery of it. Mark Erickson, you've said that Soroyan's voice is a perfect one for our time. Can you talk a little more about that? Soroyan's stories are often told through the wise eyes of a child, and and this allows for a kind of wonderment. And his voice is like a a voice from above, dare say godlike, simple yet profound. You know, as he writes about mankind, its tragedy, comedy, madness, genius, folly, and and I think it is his voice is a perfect one for our time. This kind of time of coronavirus, the urban roar has become a whisper. Everything has been reduced to the elemental. We live each day for a moment. You know, whether it's the deep breath of a hike, the feel of the sun, the taste of a meal we've cooked ourselves, we've returned to Soroyan time. When you were young, you had some interaction with Soroyan. Yeah, I mean, my grandfather, Aram Arox, and Soroyan were friends. My grandfather was a decade older than Soroyan, uh, but, but they knew each other. So as a kid, I would see Soroyan riding his bicycle, you know, madly pedaling. Uh, in the summer with the top hat on and down the streets of Fresno. And I'd stop and say hello and remind him that I was Aram Arox's grandson. And th- then as I got older and got a license around 16, 17, I would pick him up because he did not drive. I'd pick him up and take him to my grandparents' house for dinner. And then a few years beyond that, when I was thinking about, hmm, maybe maybe I'd like to be a writer someday, I would go visit him at his house over there on Griffith Way in northwest Fresno. That that address was actually in the phone book under the name Aram Garoglanyan. And Aram Garoglanyan is the character in My Name is Aram, his most famous short story collection. And that short story collection really, I think, was inspired by Twain and Tom Sawyer. What Twain was doing through the eyes of Tom Sawyer, Soroyan did through the eyes of Aram Garaglanyan. And it was a different voice, though, because it was a voice of a child whose parents were immigrants from, you know, fleeing a genocide. So it was an immigrant's voice, and that's the story he told us. So I'd go visit him, and, and his grass over there was waist high. And if you looked at it, you thought, geez, this is, this is a peculiar person who lives inside. And it was. But there was a purpose to that grass because he was harvesting the dandelion for his salads. And there was mint that he had planted in there. And he was harvesting the mint for his tea. His tea kettle would whistle all day. I mean, he was constantly drinking tea. And I'd go in and he'd shout from the the kitchen. He'd look out and he'd say, oh, fellow Armenian, come on in. Come in. And, and he had this bellow, this loud, loud roar. And with a slight little lisp, a little whistle lisp, I'd go in and there he'd invite you to his main room and 
he would type standing up on a draftsman's table and it was in the middle of the room. And then all around him was all this kind of clutter that was organized clutter. I remember his shoes were in a corner and they were burnished in this fine French polish, he said. And then he had all these rocks and twine and shards of glass that he would collect on his bicycle rides through town, pick them up, put them in his pocket, bring them home, empty them, empty them out in his living room and study them for a couple days. And I remember asking him once, why the rocks? And he said, I collect rocks because rocks remind me that art should be simple. And it was around this time I started uh, reading a lot and collecting a vocabulary list of big, fancy words. And I, I'd tell him some of the words I was collecting. I remember one was ubiquitous, which means something is everywhere. And he, he kind of, he didn't laugh. He, he just kind of smiled and said, oh, ubiquitous. He said, you know, you ought to go back to my short stories and count the words I use. I use, let's say, 300 words. That's all, 300 words. And I say, are you kidding me? He says, no. He says, it's nice to know a word like ubiquitous, but I don't think you'd ever want to use it in your writing. (laughs) (laughs) And so these are the lessons that got passed to me. I I didn't know that they were lessons then, but they were. And then I was studying journalism at Fresno State, and my teacher was the great Roger Tatarian. And Tatarian and Soroyan had been friends. And, you know, wherever I went, I had a notebook. But Soroyan would not let me bring that notebook and pen inside the house. He says, I don't want you taking notes with your head down in your notebook. He said, look, see, let it make an impression on you. And then when you go back, you can take your notes. And so after each visit, uh, I'd stay an hour or so. We'd talk and chat. And I'd I'd go out to my Firebird, my green Firebird Formula 400 that I got from my dad. It was a 1971 model. And I madly start scribbling all the things I could remember from that visit while it was still fresh in my head. And so those were the encounters I had with Soroyan. And years, years later, after he was dead, I discovered that he had written, like he had written everything else, these encounters into his diary that Mark Arox came by today, or Mark Arox came by, picked me up and took me to the house of his grandparents. And we had this fine meal and he would list all the foods we had and some of the other visitors that were there and their stories. So this was a constant life of inquiry. He asked questions all the time, inquiry and knowledge and writing it down. And this diary was, I think he kept it, geez, for 40 years, every day of his life. So he's made an impression on you as a writer in terms of, you know, how many times you want to use the word ubiquitous and things like that. (laughs) Yeah. How about just as a fellow human being? Soroyan, I remember him once telling me, I was trying to engage him in some talks about politics. And he said, listen, I, I don't pay much attention to politics. I read, but I don't want to delve into it a whole lot. It gets in the way of the human experience, is what he said. So, you know, he had this fascinating philosophy. And that philosophy was was carried out in his writing. And I think you can read Soroyan like five different times in your life and take away wholly different experiences each time. You read him as a child and you think, well, that's the child's voice writing for children. Then you read him as a teenager, it hits you differently. You read him as a young adult and a middle-aged adult, it hits you differently. My son, who read a, a lot of Soroyan as a child, my son, Jake, we were rereading him 
in the midst of this coronavirus one night, and he remarked about how it was a completely different experience. This guy wrote in a way like none of them did. You know, he was right up there in, in the 30s and 40s as, uh, you know, the most famous writer in the world with Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, and Steinbeck. But today he's forgotten, maybe the most forgotten famous writer of that century. And it's largely because people write him off as being maybe too simple or too sentimental. But geez, you read it and it, it goes right to the heart of our time here, that it's short and what is it that we experience and leave behind? And so it's, 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 I say it's elemental, but it's profoundly elemental. The first story we're going to read will be read by you. Tell us about this first one. The first story is The Summer of the Beautiful White Horse. It is uh, the first story in the collection of My Name is Aram. It's his most famous short story, in part because it was part of a collection that was done in the 60s, I think, of the best short stories of the 20th century, and this was one of the hundred, I think. You know, I don't want to step on the story itself because it's so perfectly done, especially at the beginning. I mean, he grabs you by the throat at the very, very outset, and he doesn't let go for, for 15 to 20 minutes. And so many things are woven into, into it, uh, so much wisdom and humor and tragedy and all of it. It's just all there in one story, and I think that's what makes it so special. Let's listen now as Fresno writer Mark Arax reads William Soroyan's The Summer of the Beautiful White Horse. The Summer of the Beautiful White Horse by William Soroyan. One day back there in the good old days, when I was nine and the world was full of every imaginable kind of magnificence, and life was still a delightful and mysterious dream, my cousin Murad, who was considered crazy by everybody who knew him except me, came to my house at four in the morning and woke me up by tapping on the window of my room. Aram, he said. I jumped out of bed and looked out the window. I couldn't believe what I saw. It wasn't morning yet, but it was summer, and with daybreak not many minutes around the corner of the world, it was light enough for me to know I wasn't dreaming. My cousin Morad was sitting on a beautiful white horse. I stuck my head out of the window and rubbed my eyes. Yes, he said in Armenian. It's a horse. You're not dreaming. Make it quick if you want to ride. I knew my cousin Murad enjoyed being alive more than anybody else who had ever fallen into the world by mistake. But this, this was more than even I could believe. In the first place, my earliest memories had been memories of horses, and my first longings had been longings to ride. This was the wonderful part. In the second place, we were poor. This was the part that wouldn't permit me to believe what I saw. We were poor. We had no money. Our whole tribe was poverty-stricken. Every branch of the Garaglanyan family was living in the most amazing and comical poverty in the world. Nobody could understand where we even got enough money to keep us with food in our bellies. 
not even the old men of the family. Most important of all, though, we were famous for our honesty. We had been famous for our honesty for something like 11 centuries, even when we had been the wealthiest family in what we liked to think was the world. We were proud first, honest next, and after that, we believed in right and wrong. None of us would take advantage of anybody in the world, let alone steal. Consequently, even though I could see the horse so magnificent, even though I could smell it so lovely, even though I could hear it breathing so exciting, I couldn't believe the horse had anything to do with my cousin Murad or with me or with any of the other members of our family, asleep or awake, because I knew my cousin Murad couldn't have bought the horse. And if he couldn't have bought it, he must have stolen it. And I refused to believe he had stolen it. No member of the Garaglanian family could be a thief. I stared first at my cousin and then at the horse. There was a pious stillness in humor in each of them, which on one hand delighted me and on the other frightened me. Murad, I said, where did you steal this horse? Leap out of the window, he said, if you want to ride. It was true then. He had stolen the horse. There was no question about it. He had come to invite me to ride or not, as I chose. Well, it seemed to me stealing a horse for a ride was not the same thing as stealing something else, such as money. For all I knew, maybe it wasn't stealing at all. If you were crazy about horses the way my cousin Murad and I were, it wasn't stealing. It wouldn't become stealing until we offered to sell the horse which, of course, I knew we would never do. Let me put on some clothes, I said. All right, he said, but hurry. I leaped into my clothes. I jumped down to the yard from the window and leaped up onto the horse behind my cousin Murad. That year, we lived at the edge of town on Walnut Avenue. Behind our house was the country. Vineyards, orchards, irrigation ditches, and country roads. In less than three minutes, we were on Olive Avenue, and then the horse began to trot. The air was new and lovely to breathe. The feel of the horse running was wonderful. My cousin Murad, who was considered one of the craziest members of our family, began to sing. I mean, he began to roar. Every family has a crazy streak in it somewhere, and my cousin Murad was considered the natural descendant of the crazy streak in our tribe. Before him was our uncle Kosrov, an enormous man with a powerful head of black hair and the largest mustache in the San Joaquin Valley. A man so furious in temper, so irritable, so impatient, that he stopped anyone from talking by roaring the same sentence. It is no harm. Pay no attention to it. That was all, no matter what anybody happened to be talking about. 
Once, it was his own son, Arak, running eight blocks to the barber shop where his father was having his mustache trimmed to tell him their house was on fire. This man, Kosrov, sat up in the chair and roared, It is no harm. Pay no attention to it. The barber said, But the boy says your house is on fire. So Kosrov roared again, Enough. It is no harm, I say. My cousin Murad was considered the natural descendant of this man, although Murad's father was Zorab, who was practical and nothing else. That's how it was in our tribe. A man could be the father of his son's flesh, but that did not mean that he was also the father of his spirit. The distribution of the various kinds of spirit of our tribe had been from the beginning capricious and vagrant. We rode, and my cousin Murad sang, For all anybody knew, we were still in the old country, where at least according to some of our neighbors, we still belonged. We let the horse run as long as it felt like running. At last, my cousin Murad said, Get down! I want to ride alone. Will you let me ride alone, I said? That is up to the horse, my cousin said. Get down! The horse will let me ride, I said. We shall see, Murad said. Don't forget that I have a way with a horse. Well, I said, any way you have with a horse, I have also. For the sake of your safety, he said, let us hope so. Now, get down. All right, I said, but remember, you've got to let me try to ride alone, too. I got down, and my cousin Murad kicked his heels into the horse and shouted, Vazir, run. The horse stood on its hind legs, snorted, and burst into a fury of speed that was the loveliest thing I had ever seen. My cousin Murad raced the horse across a field of dry grass to an irrigation ditch, crossed the ditch on the horse, and five minutes later returned, dripping wet. The sun was coming up. Now it's my turn to ride, I said. My cousin Murad got off the horse. Ride, he said. I leaped to the back of the horse and for a moment knew the awfulest fear imaginable. The horse did not move. Kick into his muscles, my cousin Murad said. What are you waiting for? We've got to take him back before everybody in the world is up and about. I kicked into the muscles of the horse. Once again, it reared and snorted. Then, then it began to run. I didn't know what to do. Instead of running across the field to the irrigation ditch, the horse ran down the road to the vineyard of Dikran Halabian, where it began to leap over the vines. The horse leaped over seven vines before I fell. Then it continued running. My cousin Morad came running down the road. I'm not worried about you, he shouted. We've got to get that horse. You go this way, and I'll go this way. If you come upon him, be kindly. I'll be near. I continued down the road, and my cousin Murad went across the field toward the irrigation ditch. It took him a half hour to find the horse and bring him back. All right, he said. Jump on. 
The whole world is awake now. What will we do, I said. Well, he said, we will either take him back or hide him until tomorrow morning. Morad didn't sound worried, and I knew he'd hide him and not take him back. Not for a while, at any rate. Where will we hide him, I asked. I know a place, he said. How long ago did you steal this horse, I said. It suddenly dawned on me that he had been taking these early morning rides for some time now, and had come for me this morning only because he knew how much I longed to ride. Who said anything about stealing a horse, he said. Anyhow, I said, how long ago did you begin riding every morning? Not until this morning, he said. Are you telling the truth, Morad, I said. Of course not, he said. But if we are found out, that's what you're to say. I don't want both of us to be liars. All you know is that we started riding this horse this morning. All right, I said. He walked the horse quietly to the barn of a deserted vineyard, which at one time had been the pride of a farmer named Fetvajan. There were some oats and dry alfalfa in the barn. We began walking home. It wasn't easy, he said, to get the horse to behave so nicely. At first it wanted to run wild, but as I've told you, I have a way with a horse. I can get it to want to do anything I want it to do. Horses understand me. How do you do it, I said. Well, I have an understanding with a horse, he said. Yes, but what sort of understanding, I said. A simple and honest one, he said. Well, I said, I wish I knew how to reach an understanding like that with a horse. Ah, you're still a small boy, he said. When you get to be 13, you'll know how to do it. I went home and ate a hearty breakfast. That afternoon, my uncle Kosrov came to our house for coffee and cigarettes. He sat in the parlor, sipping and smoking and remembering the old country. Then another visitor arrived, a farmer named John Byro, an Assyrian who, out of loneliness, had learned to speak Armenian. My mother brought the lonely visitor coffee and tobacco, and he rolled a cigarette and sipped and smoked. And then, at last, sighing sadly, he said, My white horse, which was stolen last month, is still gone. I cannot understand it. My uncle Kosrov became very irritated and shouted, It's no harm. What is the loss of a horse? Haven't we all lost the homeland? What is this crying over a horse? That may be all right for you, a city dweller, to say, John Byro said. But what of my buggy? What good is a buggy without a horse? Pay no attention to it, my Uncle Kosrof roared. I walked ten miles to get here, John Byro said. You have legs, my Uncle Kosrof shouted. My left leg pains me, the farmer said. Pay no attention to it, my uncle Kosrov roared. That horse cost me sixty dollars, the farmer said. I spit on money, my uncle Kosrov said. John Byro got up and stalked out of the house, slamming the screen door. My mother explained. 
He has a gentle heart, she said. It is simply that he is homesick and such a large man. The farmer went away and I ran over to my cousin Murad's house. Murad was sitting under a peach tree trying to repair the hurt wing of a young robin which could not fly. He was talking to the bird. What is it, he said. The farmer, John Byro, I said. He visited our house. He wants his horse. You've had it a month. I want you to promise not to take it back until I learn to ride. It will take you a year to learn to ride, my cousin Murad said. Well, we could keep the horse a year, I said. My cousin Murad leaped to his feet. What, he roared? Are you inviting a member of the Garaglanian family to steal? The horse must go back to its true owner. When, I said. In six months at the latest, he said. He threw the bird into the air. The bird tried hard, almost fell twice, but at last flew away, high and straight. Early every morning, for the next two weeks, my cousin Murad and I took the horse out of the barn of the deserted vineyard where we were hiding it and rode it. And every morning the horse, when it was my turn to ride alone, leaped over the grapevines and small trees and threw me and ran away. Nevertheless, I hoped in time to learn to ride the way my cousin Murad rode. One morning, on the way to Fetvajin's deserted vineyard, we ran into the farmer, John Byro, who was on his way to town. Let me do the talking, my cousin Murad said. I have a way with farmers. Good morning, John Byro, my cousin Murad said to the farmer. The farmer studied the horse eagerly. Good morning, sons of my friends, he said. What is the name of your horse? My heart, my cousin Murad said in Armenian. Ah, a lovely name, John Byro said, for a lovely horse. I could swear it is the horse that was stolen from me many weeks ago. May I look into its mouth? Of course, Murad said. The farmer looked into the mouth of the horse. Tooth for tooth, he said. I would swear it is my horse if I didn't know your parents. The fame of your family for honesty is well known to me. Yet the horse is the twin of my horse. A suspicious man would believe his eyes instead of his heart. Well, good day, my young friends. Good day, John Byro, my cousin Murad said. Early the following morning, we took the horse to John Byro's vineyard and put it in the barn. The dogs followed us around without making a sound. The dogs, I whispered to my cousin Murad, I thought they would bark. They would at somebody else, he said, but I have a way with dogs. My cousin Murad put his arm around the horse, pressed his nose into the horse's nose, patted it, and then we went away. That afternoon, John Byro came to our house in his buggy and showed my mother the horse that had been stolen and now returned. I do not know what to think, John Byro said. The horse, the horse is stronger than ever. Better tempered, too. 
I thank God. My uncle Kosrov, who was in the parlor, became irritated and shouted, Quiet, man, quiet. Your horse has been returned. Pay no attention to it. That was Fresno writer Mark Arax reading William Soroyan's The Summer of the Beautiful White Horse, first published in 1940 as part of Soroyan's My Name is Aram, a collection of short stories. We began our program with Mark Arax sharing a bit of the preface to Soroyan's prize-winning play, The Time of Your Life. We'll close with another quotation from Soroyan, a bit of advice for a writer, though it's good for all of us, read here by Mark Arax. Try to learn to breathe deeply, really to taste food when you eat, and when you sleep, really to sleep. Try as much as possible to be wholly alive with all your might. And when you laugh, laugh like hell. And when you get angry, get good and angry. Try to be alive. You will be dead soon enough. This has been The Time of Our Life. In case you're wondering about our theme music, it was composed by Fresno native Ross Bogdasarian and his first cousin and lifelong friend, William Soroyan. The melody is actually based on an Armenian folk song. Thanks to Mark Arax for his collaboration in this series. Thanks also to Alice Daniel and the entire Valley Public Radio News team. And a special thank you to Mimi Coulter and Stanford Libraries for allowing us permission to broadcast these stories. For Valley Public Radio, I'm David Ouse. Come out of my house, my house, I'm gonna give you everything, everything, everything. Come out of my house.